Good morning, afternoon or evening everybody and welcome to Pangolin, the conservation podcast. The show dedicated to exploring and amplifying the world's underappreciated conservation stories. The stories that inspire me and I hope will inspire you too. I'm your host Jack Baker and today I am joined by Ian Allen, the supervisor of natural areas and arboriculture at the Blue Mountains Botanic Garden. He's an incredibly interesting person with an incredibly interesting career and some amazing stories to tell, so I can't wait for you all to learn more. Just to give you a taste of some of those incredible stories, just to keep you on the line, (laughs) we talk about all sorts of stuff. First, we talk about the garden he works in itself and why it's such a special and unique place. Then, we discuss the Ballad of the Wallamai Pine, a species that was long thought to be extinct, but has since returned to us. Um, And this one, side note, this one in particular is an emotional roller coaster. so get your tissues ready, be prepared, it's it's a good one. Um, We then highlight an underappreciated species that he loves, and that takes the form of the Dwarf Mountain Pine, before we discuss some of the wonderful birds of the Blue Mountains Botanic Garden, including the Lyrebird and the Gang Gang Cockatoo. As you can probably tell, we've got a lot to get through, so I will leave it here and without further ado, let's get started. And welcome back to the show. I am now joined by Ian Allen, the Supervisor of Natural Areas and Arboriculture at the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney's Blue Mountain Botanic Garden, Mount Toma. And just to kick us off today, Ian, I want to say a a huge thank you um, for for joining me today. Thank you so, so much. Oh, thanks for having me on, Jack. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to having a good old chat about everything. Yes, yes, I am. Yes, I'm very excited um, to have you here because I think it's going to be really exciting and interesting for me. For listeners who don't know, I also work in a botanic garden. I work at the Royal Botanic Garden, Edinburgh. So it's really interesting for me to learn more about plants. I don't think it's something we haven't highlighted enough on the show. So I think it's just going to be a really great conversation that we're kind of shifting focus slightly from our usual animal-based uh, conservation to the more... Um, more plant side, which is really, really exciting and really, really interesting as well. So thank you for joining. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, What I I want to kick off with, I think I gave you a a, a brief introduction at the start there, but I always like to say, you know yourself and your work far better than I do. So could you please introduce yourself to the listeners? What should they know about you? Yes, absolutely. Well, yeah, I do work, our garden is owned or Um, by the New South Wales state government. So we have a good tendency to give big, long job titles. Um, But yeah, basically, yeah, I'm I'm Ian. Um, My job day-to-day is a supervisor of arboriculture and natural areas and also open space um, at the Blue Mountain Botanic Gardens. And we're a satellite garden of the Royal Botanic Garden, which is the oldest botanic garden in Australia. Um, and along with our sis, other sister garden, the other satellite garden, um, which is the Australian Botanic Garden at Mount Annan in Western Sydney, the three of us sort of function as three very unique gardens underneath the one big Royal Botanic Garden Sydney umbrella. 
And yeah, my my day to day job is I I oversee all the trees, um, all the natural areas, 150 hectares of World Heritage UNESCO World Heritage Wilderness Area quality um, natural bushland, and all the open space, so the the turf and and everything that's not a sort of ornamental part of our living collection and garden. Um, and yeah, I guess my sort of I, I run along with another supervisor, we're responsible for all the operations on the ground with teams of arborists, um, natural areas specialists um, in conservation land management, yeah, turf managers and, and horticulturists, apprentices and everything like that. So pretty exciting. Got a, I, I'd say to people, I've got my dream job. Um, but yeah, we, uh, we really are. I, it's a cool climate garden with one of the best tree collections in Australia. And like I said, um, I spend, I get paid to be out in the bush in this World Heritage wilderness area that's just two hours west of Sydney. So it's magic. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was going to say, being in charge of trees, uh, a botanic garden seems like a, a very, 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 very important job. They're the things that I think people who come to wander around a garden, they're obviously the big kind of stuff that they'll notice. So yes, that yeah must be a lot of pressure, uh, a very, very important, big um Sometimes scary, interesting job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. I mean, and that's sort of my, I guess, I'm probably jumping ahead a little bit, but I guess my, my background really, I came as a gardener into all of this. Like, I, I always like to think I'm a horticulturist first and foremost, and then, um, then sort of moved into arboriculture, and I've been doing that for over twenty years. Um, started as an apprentice, working for rich people. So even spent spent a little bit of time doing the Aussie backpacker thing in Northern London, working in rich people's gardens there. Um, and and then I sort of came into into botanic gardens. It was always this sort of idea and dream of mine to do it. And um, I guess yeah, I had this sort of. My uncle was a horticulturist as well, and he worked at the Royal Botanic Gardens Sydney many many years ago, and actually lived on site there and. And he was a landscape architect, and I always sort of knew these stories about him in my family. Um, but you know, as a there's a lot of people I work I work with some amazing people now who are you know the true plant collectors or the the kids that grew up like obsessing about plants. And and to be honest, that wasn't really me. Um, I yeah, I, I, I sort of I didn't fall into it. But coming out of high school, you know, high school doesn't really teach you what's out there um, in terms of jobs. And I knew I wanted to work outside. I knew I wanted to work. Um, in gardening and plants or landscaping but even though I'd heard all these stories about my uncle so like he'd even he discovered several plant species he's got a eucalypt named after him eucalyptus altonae um, that he discovered on his bushwalking he's got his own personal herbarium I still didn't even know what that was when I was 18 you know I didn't no idea what botanic garden horticulture was all about no idea what even that type of conservation horticulture was about um it was just landscaping and gardening with fancy plants and yeah it sort of went this big long circle um and sort of after six or seven years of doing all of that and came back home from living overseas and was like i want to work in the botanic gardens it's it's what i want to do and and I actually didn't get a job. I, I applied for a job at the Sydney Gardens and they had a little plant ID test. I didn't even know what half the plants were. Um, and, you know, had never driven a tractor in my life or used some of the bigger machinery and done the bigger gardening stuff. And they, they gave me some feedback and said, you know, you really need to get that, get that experience. You need to sort of maybe go and get a few more qualifications. And, yeah, I went back, back to school, back to TAFE, um, which is our technical sort of college here, and just said about trying to achieve that dream so when I got my job 
at the Blue Mountains Botanic Gardens, um, it really was a, a dream come true. It was, it was kind of crazy. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. It's actually very similar to my experience in that, like, I started at the Botanic Garden at the start of a pan- of the pandemic. I just finished my degree and I was kind of looking for something new. And I, my degree was obviously in conservation. So I was aware of plants and ecosystems and I kind of had this appreciation for them, let's say, but I didn't necessarily know a lot about them. Um, and I saw this job come up and I thought, actually, that is so interesting because it was all about converting um courses that were previously taught in person into online learning and so I thought that's really something that I'm interested in I'm interested in the communication of conservation even though I don't know a lot about plants maybe I could and then since then I've really kind of my yeah I kind of have grown to love plants over time so it's been an interesting one but yeah I can the similarities I suppose are kind of there of like this um this appreciation without um maybe not knowing a lot about them and then as I obviously did my learning once I got the job, but like you just kind of, the more you learn, the more you, you fall in love. And I, it's, it's amazing. Um, and actually, yeah, I was, I was going to ask a very similar question to that actually about kind of like, um, how did you, you fall in love with plants, but you seem to, you like, you've kind of answered that already. Like it was, it's really, really interesting to hear about like how maybe when you were younger, you weren't particularly interested, but it's grown and kind of now you've ended up where you've ended up. It's, it's actually, yeah, such an interesting kind of, life career everything trajectory really really interesting yeah it's funny I mean it's it's strange I still remember as a kid like planting my first ever tree and you know it was that classic arbor day like I think in the bicentennial of Australia in 1988 or something you know they gave away all these trees to kids and and I I still remember what it was it was an acacia baleana a a cootamundra wattle and it common as mark but with this silvery gray foliage juvenile juvenile foliage that's sort of feathery and you know, I was interested in plants. Like I used to be, I'd, I'd wonder why does that plant and, you know, this other plant in my family's garden, it was like, why does it have a compound leaf? I didn't even know what a compound leaf was. And I'd sit there pulling it apart whilst my brother would be, he's, he's in the army. He was always obsessed with being in the army and he'd be like, what are you doing? Playing with plants and like push me into the bushes kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I didn't really know about it as a career. Didn't really know that that was this thing that you could do and, and study and, um, it's sort of become a thing. I, I love sharing that passion that I have now with with younger people, with showing them like you know, there's all these amazing jobs outside in conservation, in horticulture that that make a difference. That um, you know, you get to interact with the the real world, the living living world. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and it's. I feel like it's one of those things that a lot of the time people say like, oh, you work in a botanic garden. Is it just spending all day like? walking around looking at plants and like um but it's it's a lot more complicated than that and like there's a lot I feel like that goes on behind the scenes that people don't get to see that's really really interesting really really exciting but you just you don't they don't appreciate that goes on because they don't necessarily see all the complicated stuff so that's yeah it's really really interesting um yeah to hear your kind of yeah perspective on that one I guess I hadn't asked written this down as a question but just to kind of like yeah help help me actually and help everyone else understand like what is your day-to-day like when you go in in the mornings and things what what is it that you're doing in the the day-to-day yeah it's it's interesting like I said I mean I I sort of manage these teams of horticulturists it's um it's got to a point I get you know the further up you go with your career sometimes you get a bit further away from the plants I I just spend a, a year kind of acting in the curator manager job which is the next tier up from my job where I sort of oversaw the whole garden um, but it was, 
I guess it, it, one of the wonderful things about my job is that it daily is so diverse. I mean, I could spend a day where I might come in and I'll, I'll have time scheduled in with the horticulturist who looks after the natural areas and we'll be out there in the field um, walking the tracks, maintaining the tracks, um, you know, monitoring things. We're in a big building phase in our garden, so we're sort of building the, the platform for the future. Um, we're really doing a lot of planning, a lot of looking at what it is that we have. Um, yeah, I guess people, like you said, a lot of people don't know what botanic gardens horticulture is. Like even even my my brother came to the garden for the first time last year and I explained to him that every single one of our plants in the living collection um, has a tag on it. It's GPS located. It's got records behind it. Hopefully it's from our preferences that it's sourced in the wild and has a conservation and science purpose. Um, and, you know, he was blown away. He's like, I honestly never knew that that's what you did. I just thought you mowed some lawns and cut down some trees. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, if you were to really, really simplify, but that seems, yeah, a harsh simplification. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, at the end of the day, maybe like, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing. Like, I am, um, I'm running a, a, a summer school for the kids in the, the garden here in Edinburgh. Um, and I'm now nervous because I always forget that there is such an important conservation purpose there that like, in like a normal summer school, if we were outdoors, you can like have them like turning over logs and like looking at things and like, but here like you can do that to a certain extent, but you have to like protect the plants because they're there with a conservation purpose. You have to be very careful with them. Like they are there for a reason beyond enjoyment of the them in an aesthetic fashion or enjoyment of kind of them for uh an educational tool they're there for a conservation purpose so yeah i kind of uh, yeah. i'm gonna have to remember that uh, a lot during the summer i think um it's really really interesting really really interesting um uh, I wondered, moving slightly on, I think I've just kind of realised that we're talking away about botanic gardens and your job and the day-to-day -day and stuff, but we haven't actually introduced the garden itself. So I don't know if you wanted to kind of uh, maybe give the listeners more context for our discussion. Could you tell them a little bit more about the, the Blue Mountains bot Botanic Garden, Mount Toma? I know you've kind of told us it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, so it's very, very important, very, very unique and special place. But yeah, do you want to tell them maybe a little bit more about it and what could they expect if they visited? Maybe that sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. So um, like I touched on before, I guess, so where the Blue Mountain Botanic Gardens, Mount Toma, is a satellite garden of the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney. So we're about two hours west of Sydney up in the Blue Mountains. Um, and that we sit at about a, a thousand meters um in australia that's that's pretty high um you know we don't have giant mountains like in in europe and a lot of the rest of the world but so yeah we, we sit up in in this really interesting climatic area where sydney's a sort of temperate zone but because we're up at a thousand meters we're we're on this mountain range that is dotted with these basalt outcrops that are related to a sort of a volcanic period in australia's deep deep past and so we, we sort of sit on the verge of the Great Dividing Range that runs the entire east coast of Australia. And we, we're right where the moist, humid, sort of temperate coastal air meets this dry western cold air off the plains. And we get a, about a metre uh, to a metre and a half of rainfall a year in a, in a normal year. Um, if it's a drought year, we can be right down to 600 mils a year or less. Um, we've just had two uh, La Nina-driven weather events that have pushed that way up into metres of, of rain a year. But really, I guess what it is, is it creates this incredible, um, unique 
soil and climatic condition for growing all sorts of stuff, which in Australia is very rare. You know, Australia is this super old continent. Our, our soils are generally incredibly ancient and incredibly skeletal and low in nutrients, often quite shallow. And yet in this basalt outcrop, um, it was these things were sought out by early early colonialists and settlers for horticultural uses, and the garden was actually a flower farm. Um, so we're right at the top of a mountain. We've got three hundred and sixty almost degrees of aspect, and a family that had run it as a flower farm right through the nineteen hundreds ended up donating it to the New South Wales government for one dollar on the condition that it became a botanic garden um, and part of the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney, and. Back in about 1987, the garden was built as this huge um, bicentennial-funded project um, through Australia's bicentennial. And it was a really unique thing in Australia. Like, a lot of gardens were funded around that time, but our garden was built with this incredibly strong landscape design. So the government architects did this incredible job. They designed this strong thematic collection. They used these incredible basalt crystals that are mined off the site um, and built incredible walls where they built the, the what we believe is the biggest rock garden in the southern hemisphere and they set out with this strong curatorial sort of theme to, to be a cool climate garden with a focus on southern hemisphere plants some um, cool climate northern hemisphere plants but and a real focus on telling the story of plant evolution and their links to Gondwana and things like Proteaceae. so from the very beginning the garden's 35 years old this year it's just had this, this sort of really uniquely powerful, not just plan and design, but this unique space. So it sits in the middle of the UNESCO World Heritage Wilderness Area in the Blue Mountains. And we have this wonderful view out into that. And, and we actually are lucky enough to also own and control about, like I said, 230 hectares. Not sure if that's 400 and something acres of um of that wilderness that that backs onto national park um, and pristine wilderness. So, yeah, really special, like a really special place. And and actually, I'm sorry just to ramble a little bit, but I, one thing that's important to me, and I should have done this at the start, is is it's important to us to acknowledge the the traditional owners of the land on where the garden is and where we're, where I'm speaking to from today. And and they're the Darug um, people. And I'd like to just acknowledge their um, elders, past, present, and emerging, and hopefully, people like me, we can be stewards of the land that we're looking after, that was was always theirs and one of the oldest continuing civilizations on earth and cultures on earth. And um, that's a really important thing to us that we're we're trying to build our connections back to those communities and trying to be be led and guided by their their ancient knowledge that they have about managing that land and conserving it. So so yeah, all of those things come together um, for it just to be a, a magical place, special place to work and something I feel really privileged to be able to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's so so important and it's a discussion I think that's been raised a lot the last few years is kind of the validity of living collections and how they're used and how they've been collected and how can we make sure that they're used in the best way going forward and how can we make sure that the past is embraced and learned from and mistakes are not made again and these all kind of discussions about decolonization and all that sort of stuff going on and I think that's so interesting to that 
it's a discussion that's happening a lot here in Scotland and in the UK. And I think it's really exciting and interesting and important for me to hear and um, for us all to know that on the other side of the world, um, those discussions are still happening. And it's, it's really, really important and, and nice to kind of hear about that as well. Because um, it is, it's so such important, important, vital work. And I think, yeah, without it, that there's, yeah, there's just no way a collection, I think, in 2022 can function without having without thinking about it in some way i think it's it's really really important um something else that's striking me is like when you're talking about it's so new and like the fact that it's a relatively new garden well in in terms of the grand scheme of things i think a lot of people picture when they think of botanic gardens things like the royal botanic garden edinburgh (laughs) i'm gonna bring that a lot today it's my touching point for gardens but like it's over 300 years old so it's like interesting to hear about this new garden that you work in that's kind of newer garden that you work in that's kind of really set theme and kind of set kind of um yeah the plants that are all kind of look well i was gonna say local local is in southern hemisphere and all kind of really strongly themed around this idea and i think that's really really exciting and really really interesting that it's this new but strong idea focused place i think that's really really exciting and interesting um i wondered though how does it kind of relate to to sydney so is it kind of a distinct thing um and it's kind of really really separate and they're both really strongly themed in different directions is it kind of yours is more a wild type garden that's kind of focused on plants from the area and then sydney's more from around plants from around the world like how does how does it work and how does that relationship kind of function there as well yeah i guess for us we sort of we think of it a bit like sydney's the oldest botanic garden in australia right on the shores of sydney harbour there and it's very much got more of that heritage combination so Whilst it's, you know, it's got an incredible living collection, you know, one of the best palm collections in the world outside of Kew and places like that. But um, it's got that element of, it's so, it gets 5 million people visiting it a year. It's, it's got a, a strong heritage layout, a very, very traditional layout to it. And whereas our garden, um, it, it complements that in, A, we can grow things that they just can't grow because, because we're, I mean, two hours away from that, the fact that we can grow these incredible, you know, we can grow sequoias, we can grow all sorts of wonderful, huge trees. Um, we've got some very old plantings from the people that donated the, the land to the garden. But um, I guess we're able to also play this role where we're starting to really shape the way we think about our garden as the, the term um, biorefuge is sort of thrown around a little bit or, you know, biorefugia, where because we're a unique we're, we're essentially an island surrounded by this buffer of natural bushland up in the mountains. So whilst that comes with a unique bunch of risks and environmental, like environmental risks and environmental threats, it also allows us to essentially grow plants in a way that they're protected from some of the risks, other risks like pathogens. Um, a lot of our northern hemisphere plants, we have this potential to be a plant sentinel to, to look for pathogens to protect um wild collected plants from the northern hemisphere like things like our ash collection things where in north america you know due to emerald ash borer they're all their ash trees are mm. under threat just like chet they lost chestnuts their pine trees are under under threat from pine beetle and we can actually collect these plants in a way that does really does conserve them just by having them so even if we don't do really strong conservation work or science work on them we're, we're holding up that genetic material and pr- preserving it in a way that really does have a buffer. I like to think we're, we're almost an island 
on an island because um, you throw in the fact that we're we're in Australia. Um, we're so far away from everything, and and our quarantine has always been a really strong thing for us that that helps protect us. So yeah, I think that's that's one of the most unique things about that, and and we're working hard with a lot of the botanic gardens in the Australian and New Zealand network to um to think of all the gardens with similar bioregions and how we can share our that material and our collections to protect them um, and make sure that, that those really rare and important things that we're, we're working on and are saving are, aren't just sitting in a stamp collection in, in a garden where we, we, we don't share it around, you know. That's fantastic, actually. It's really, really, yeah, really, really cool. Really, really cool. Now, I guess you kind of, yeah, you talked about it there as kind of this island away. And what I wanted to know is, like, on this island, in your little slice of paradise in the Blue Mountains, what are some of your favourite species to work with? What are the things that, the heavy hitters for you that you just love? What are the kind of, yeah, the really important, um, some of your favourite things to, to work with at the, at the garden? Yeah, look, I guess the, there's one that's it's it's a, almost bordering on cliche now, but but for some of your listeners, I won't I won't assume anyone knows anything, but uh, you know, one of the key flat, I guess, the flagship species for us is the Wallamai pine, so Wallamai nobilis, and it our garden's sort of story and and origin is is really tightly linked to the the story of the Wallamai pine, so. For, for your listeners who aren't as familiar with it, I, I can give the, the quick rundown of it and why the Wallamai pine is such an amazing species. Is Basically, the Wallamai pine was a, is a tree species that was thought to be extinct. It only existed in the fossil record from millions of years ago until a New South Wales parks ranger was canyoning on a personal trip in, in the Wallamai National Park, which is only a couple of hours north, northwest of Sydney, and he, w- he was in this remote slot canyon. They're these things are these deep sandstone canyons and they've got deep rainforest in them and he was walking through it and he realised this tree in there was like nothing he'd ever seen before. And he took some leaf material back with him and he made contact with some people that at the time our botanists that worked for the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney and, and the Blue Mountains Botanic Gardens Toma and they, they tried to ID it. And they all knew that it wasn't normal. They that they were a bit unsure. They they knew that it was potentially an aracaria or an agathis, and yet they didn't have a cone or any any other parts other than these leaves. So there's this whole wonderful story about it. It's it's captured in a, a great book called The Wall of My Pine by James Woodford, and it's got the whole story. You know, these these botanists set out to try and identify it. They couldn't get it. The the Short short version is that they knew this is back in 1994, by the way. So health and safety in the workplace was a bit different back then. But the national parks guys got their got their helicopter and they flew out and they hovered right above one of these trees because the botanist said, if we can get a cone from one of these trees, we'll be able to identify this. A guy hung out of the helicopter and snatched a piece of cone off the top of one of these trees. These trees they grow to about almost 40 meters down in these deep canyons, and these these helicopter pilots are just incredible, like what they're they're capable of doing. So they got this this cone. The guy almost fell out of the helicopter, but didn't. They they brought it back to the botanic gardens, and the botanic gardens managed to identify that it was neither an aracaria nor an agathis, and it was something in between, um, and. Basically, this tree exists in these. They've they've since discovered small uh, four small populations of them. There's less than a hundred trees in the wild, and 
our garden, um, along with the horticulturists and scientists at the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney, were the first people ever. They propagated it. Um, they kept all of that incredibly secret for a long time because of how high risk um, pathogen spread into those places was, and you know people would want to go and find this plant. And yeah, back in the in the late nineties, they they propagated enough of them. They sold them around like through a big auction to raise money for their conservation. Um, since then, they secured the the species. They're not going to go extinct yet. Um, they, I think, queue all over the world. Everyone's got a wall of my pine now. Our scientists just did a, a citizen science project to find out who was growing them and where. Um, they claimed that the tallest one in cultivation was in Norfolk, I think, in the UK, but they forgot to check some of our records for our plants in our garden and i'll say we have the tallest ones in cultivation anywhere in the world sitting at over 12 meters um but then you know like all things the the story of that you know it's known in australia it's known in the world of plant conservation but i guess it probably lost flavor um other things happen people are always tracking other important discoveries in science work but in 2019 as a lot of people know the the black summer bushfires um burnt a huge portion of the east coast of australia and our garden was facing the fires um the drought there'd been a long drought period for about four or five years and we were sort of always expecting that these bushfires would would happen but no one expected them to be on the scale that they they happened and from the viewing deck up on the mountain at Mount Tomar, we could actually see the bushfire called, it was, at the time it was called the Gospers Mountain Megafire. Well, they, they didn't know it was going to be a megafire, but it was a lightning strike that happened in this hugely remote World, um, World Heritage Wilderness area in the Wallamai National Park. And it spread and spread and spread, and it was unstoppable because of the conditions. And it went on to burn millions of hectares of the, uh, of the national park. And whilst it threatened the Blue Mountains Botanic Gardens Mount Tomar and eventually burnt part of our garden, we also knew that it was going to burn the wild sites of the Wallamai Pine. So scientists, this incredible effort had been going on for a couple of years in secret where scientists from our Department of Environment um, and our Australian Institute of Botanical Science, which has run our science division out of Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney, had been working secretly on a translocation site for the Wallamai Pine, and they'd been aiming to do a translocation on what we believe is like one of the biggest scales anywhere in the world. So they were going to try and establish two populations of 400 trees in a, a really complex ecological experiment um, to to, to essentially establish wild populations. Um, one of the, this involved scientists that had been there since the very beginning, such as uh, Dr. Kathy Offord, who's one of our lead scientists, um, a, an amazing scientist from the Department of Environment called Baron McKenzie. And they set this incredible sort of translocation project up. And, and some of our arborists, and I was lucky enough to be involved in it, were involved in the initial plant out. And this happened about a year before the fires. So we planted yeah, 400 or more trees in these two remote populations in these deep canyons of Wallamai Pine in the Wallamai National Park. And we knew that the fires were also going to threaten those. So we couldn't share that with anyone. It wasn't published. We all knew that these things were out there. We knew that these sites would be burnt. And then just, as, just before Christmas in 2019, fires actually were a couple of k's away from the wild sites of the Wallamai Pine and I'd been working with 
Barron over the years on this project and I got a call out of the blue where the, the minister's responsible, all the national parks managers, all these conservation scientists, everybody had been summoned to go, we need to do something to try and protect the Wollamai Pines. And Barron and I had done, we'd chatted on his translocation experiments about establishing remote sprinkler systems. And I just got this call and on a Thursday afternoon that said, um, we've been asked to try and build a sprinkler system in, in one of the wild sites and protect it. Do you think you can do it? The two guys we'd normally call, uh, one of them's on holidays in the Himalayas and one's in Tasmania and we can't reach them. And I got approvals from my bosses and within 48 hours we were helicoptered into the canyon in the national park. Um, I'd, this, this site is guarded like um, it is kept incredibly secret because of the pathogens that have been, we believe, have been brought into the site by bushwalkers over the years and are threatening the trees. Uh, Phytophthora cinnamomai is the, is the main pathogen, a water mold, and the trees are incredibly susceptible to it because of their ancient genetics. And where we went in there, we had essentially a day to construct this um, irrigation system to try to put enough water into the, the, the leaf litter to reduce the intensity of the fires when they, when they eventually came through. And all the while we had to maintain these incredible hygiene protocols. Um, we had to spray every single piece of equipment ourselves. Anything that touched the ground um, had to be sprayed down with a, a methylated spirits solution, like an alcohol solution. And we managed to put the sprinkler system up. And we, we hope it made a difference. Um, you know, there was a point in time when we were down there where we thought we might be the last people on earth to ever see those trees. Um, and the ash sort of started falling from the sky, the, the canyon filled with smoke, and they had helicopters on standby to try and get us out. And eventually we, we, we got out and the fires moved through um, a few days later and some incredibly heroic National Parks firefighters who do remote aerial firefighting were winched into the site um, immediately after the fire. They, they used parts of our sprinkler system to, to put out... Um, some of the blazes that were still burning on the trees, um, you know, the true, truly heroic sort of stuff just to save these trees. And, and yeah, that story ended up being released a, f a month or so or a few weeks later, right when, the, you know, the whole of the east coast of Australia was on fire. And, you know, at the time it was kept really secret. Everybody worried, you know, are people going to say, why are they saving a bunch of trees when houses are burning and all that happened? But when the story came out, it was just this incredible good news story that I think people needed right very, very dark time. And, and yeah, it was wonderful. Like I, to this day, I, you probably hear it's, it's a bit emotional. Um, it, it's this thing to, to felt like I play, I got to play this tiny little part um, in something that is just, it's, it's a multi-generation project to try and save these trees, to try and establish these wild sites of them. Um, and you know, I, I got to I get to work with these people that are just incredible. Like I'm just a horticulturist and an arborist, really. Um, you know, I'm great at growing the things and and looking after things and doing that. But these these people, they know these things on on the deeply, almost molecular level. You know, they they, they write PhDs about it. They carry out all sorts of experiments. And suddenly, I was there. I'd read the book, I'd seen the movie, and and then next thing, I'm there with them. And um, and that. That's the sort of sorry. I went on a big long long rant about a, a story, but I'm I'm sort of passionate about it. It's it's hard not to be involved when you get to be so involved with such a wonderful species. It's 
It's the gateway drug to plant conservation in Australia. No, it's 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 fantastic. It's such a good like that was such a good story. I know you you said you were off on a tangent or a ramble. I, it, not at all. I was on an emotional roller coaster with you. I know you said you makes it makes you emotional. I'm lost for work. I think it's just yeah, yeah. Such a fantastic and important and brilliant story that yeah. And I I feel like yeah. If you the listeners at home, if you've not been hit emotionally by this, what what's what, what's going on? Because <laughs> that was such a, it is it's such a good emotional strong story and i think if you're not writing this down get writing because that's the you've got the sequel to the original book right there because that's such a fantastic story of kind of triumph and protection of nature and i think so important and i can i could yeah i just i loved i loved it loved it loved it loved that it. it's one of my favorite stories i think i've ever heard on the podcast it's just fantastic um and yeah i think it just it makes it once you've found something and um, the thought of losing it again must be so so tricky. I think, like, the, I can't imagine. I can't. I can't even begin to imagine that. I get like, it would just be so so dreadful. And so the the lengths that you've gone to to try and protect it are are fantastic. And it's such a good story. And yeah, when you think about it even wider and you think beyond the trees, it's easy to see why people fell in love because th- these trees don't just represent the trees themselves. They represent all of the wildlife of Australia because those trees will have provided refuge for so many other plant um, and animal species and they just are kind of this yeah hope this image of hope and life and so to protect them it's yeah just such a good story I'm I'm it's not often someone gets me speechless or whatever it is on the podcast but that is such a good story such 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 a good story you know like it's it's funny i I always try to look for the silver linings in these things and i think all of us after the the pandemic and everything everyone really trying to do that and there are some great silver linings i mean that story came out it was so big that it was leonardo dicaprio posted it on his web on his social media pages and you know i tease um baron about him being you know leonardo dicaprio is his biggest fan but it led to a bit of a resurgence. You know, I, I mean, our scientists, like all over the world, science funding is is always driven by all sorts of other influences. And, and it's so hard for the, for any scientist to get the funding they need to study these things. And, and our organisation, um, like I mentioned, the Australian Institute of Botanical Science and our Royal Botanic Gardens Domain Trust, they've been working at this stuff on the wall of my pines for years. But again, the stories that came out of this, our our politicians were, were enraptured by it it was wonderful they they felt it was something they needed to get behind our our state government has declared the wallamai pine a, an asset of intergenerational significance it's led to a resurgence in the research work that's going into it our, our scientists have been reintegrated there's a lot of simple science going on to do with well very complex actually i shouldn't be reductive um to do pollination experiments using our living collection we're looking at building seed banks, securing the genetic diversity of the whole, the sort of all the wild trees in our living collections. And the public, you know, are coming and wanting to buy all of my pines again. Um, and it's uh, it's just this wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. And it's great to see. And I think, yeah, it's, it's great to see because it's like, I feel like a lot of the time plants get the short end of the kind of <laughs> short end of the stick, no pun intended. They get the short kind of, they get less focused than kind of animals they're inherently harder to teach about and fall in love with and kind of educate people about because they 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 have this disadvantage in that they're not classically cute they don't have the big fluffy fur and they don't have the big floppy ears or the big round eyes they kind of are harder to sometimes sell so i think yeah this silver lining that there has been this resurgence 
even though it's so hard and it came in a really tricky circumstance, I think it's so important. And I think it's really encouraging that there are stories out there about plants that even though they're not typically charismatic, they are, <laughs> they're special and they have these amazing stories and they mean so, so much. And yeah, it's, it's so important um, to kind of highlight them. I, I, I yeah, I, I really, really like it. Um, Oh, I'm I'm just about getting myself back together from the story. That's uh, there, um, but while I do, uh, <laughs> I think what I want to know about is obviously we've had this resurgence now, all about the wall of my pine. It's beloved by people. They've fallen back in love with it again, and it's got this news coverage and all that sort of stuff. What other species do you think, if you could maybe not shift the focus, but if you could shine another spotlight? onto another underappreciated plant species that you work with, which one would you choose? What would you want to highlight and tell people about? Uh, look, I, I, I'd say it's probably not, I don't have a really strong personal attachment to it, but it's funny you ask, we, we, we have this other species that's like, uh, I, hate to say, I hate to use this, someone will probably be angry at me for saying this, it's like the red-headed stepchild of the Wollamai pine. It's, it's called the dwarf mountain pine, and it's it's called Ferris Ferra Fitzgeraldio, and it is another super rare small conifer, a bit more like a shrub. Um, it used to be called Microstrobus Fitzgeraldii. It, it there's only about six hundred ish of them in the wild. They're only found south in the spray zones of south facing waterfalls in the Blue Mountains and right below the, the most heavily populated areas of the Blue Mountains. So from a place called Wentworth Falls, which is near where Charles Darwin walked there when he visited Australia, um, through sort of west of that to a, a famous place, the uh, Katoomba near the Three Sisters. And we, our garden's also been involved in, in preserving that. And it's actually an amazing little plant for a cool climate bathroom in your spray zone of your shower. Um, and I, I've killed quite a few of them by trying to do that. But yeah, they're, they're not they're not this amazingly big track, uh, plant. You know, they, they've sort of got this pendulous grey foliage, almost like some of the prostrate junipers and things like that, but very light, very delicate foliage. And there's an incredible use for them in the landscape. Um, they're actually a lot tougher than we give them credit for. They just need to be wet. They're great for a, a moist, um, shady spot in the garden. And yeah, we haven't established a, a translocation site for them yet, but it's something that we're sort of chipping away at. Um, we've had to pause through through the through the fires and the pandemics and everything on that. But yeah, again, it's it's this other quirky little plant. It's it's so local to us. It's it's from right nearby. You know, a lot of people go to these waterfalls near Katoomba and they wouldn't even know they're looking at it because it gets no publicity. It's only us that sing its song. Um, and next to the Wallamai pine, you know, there's this poor little thing that we, we trundle out pots of it. We sell them at our visitor center and, um, a lot of people are like, oh yeah, that's great. But I, I want a Wallamai pine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it, yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's, yeah. It's this possible, Im impossible battle where you're kind of like, yeah, look over here. This one's cool too. Look, look over here. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, um, yeah, not an easy one to try and deal with. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, it must be impossible for you living in that area as well. Like the people going out and discovering these things, it must be impossible for you to go anywhere and enjoy kind of a nice casual hike because like you'll be looking at everything. You'll be kind of like wanting to stop every five minutes to examine <laughs> and like see something. And like it would be exciting, but it would be yeah impossible for you to go anywhere 
anywhere properly. And I guess with friends or family, like if you were trying to drag them around and they're like every five minutes, we need to keep walking. We can't stop and look at every tree. Like <laughs> it must, yeah, it can't be a great experience every time for them either. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm sure you're probably like me. You follow, I'm sure conservation people are the same. Um, it's the, the plant memes. We yeah, are pointing out plants. Um, yeah. Uh, I think my, my partner, she, she, she actually is, is into food security and market gardening and plants and, and conservation land management. But as well, if I'm like, look at this, look at this, look at this little orchid here. Hey, look at this. And, Great. Can we just enjoy the walk? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yep. I, uh, I posted a photo the other day, actually, of um, the, the Titan Arum, which we have uh, at Edinburgh, um, has just bloomed. And for people who don't know, it's kind of one of the world's largest flowers. It's the world's largest, I think, unbranched inflorescence. It's a huge, smelly, amazing, beautiful, insane plant that's like... Uh, yeah, I posted a photo standing next to it, and it was taller than me almost. Like it's 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 crazily crazily huge. Um, and yeah, everyone obviously started commenting and posting things and replying to me, being like, "What, what is, what is that you're posing next to? This strange alien look at what is that? What is that?" And then obviously they should know that once they do that, that has opened Pandora's box, and they're gonna get all of these kind of um responses back of like oh it's cool it's this that and it does this and it smells because of this and it's big and it does this and it only blooms every this many years or whatever it is and so but I think it's so important that even though they kind of might not necessarily have asked for that information they get delivered it and it's something we all need to be doing is like making people fall in love with these like charismatic mega flora almost the equivalent of charismatic mega fauna like these are our elephants these are our whales these are our kind of things and hopefully one day we can get the the dwarf mountain pine up to that same level of like oh it's cool it's really really interesting it's the kind of new little cool plant on the block that everybody loves and everyone wants to see um alongside the wallamai and the titan arum and all these other big um interesting things absolutely <laughs> yeah and and like you said like the titan arum you know you need these flagship sort of species people you've got to get like it's easy preaching to the choir, right? But you've got to get people in. You've got to get them engaged with plants and, and thinking about conservation in those ways. Um, on, on the Tide of Marin, just to digress, uh, my colleague the other day said, if you were a plant, what plant could you be? And people were throwing out pretty funny things. And I, I straight away, I, I just thought this was, I was being funny. I said, Titan Aram because I'm tall, I stink, and three quarters of the year I'm nothing. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and hopefully no one in the room went. Yep, that's that seems about right. Yep, yep, that's that's pretty much right. Yeah, <laughs> slightly harsh, slightly harsh, but yeah, it. I mean, it's a good one to be. It's, it's it's of all the plants, it's the one most people know. So yeah, I, I feel like it's a it's a a, a backhanded compliment in a way. Uh, <laughs> interesting though, interesting. Um. I don't want to start doing that for me because otherwise I feel like, yeah, it could get insulting. Uh, I'll maybe have a think about that one. Maybe ask some very kind people what they think, what plan I would be. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> before we get too distracted by that, uh, what I did want to ask is um, talking about the garden and it seems like where it's placed and everything that goes on in it, it and all of these amazing species, it must be a hive of just biodiversity and interesting, bizarre kind of species and ecosystem interactions and kind of yeah all of these kind of beyond the plants beyond the individual the kind of interesting and an interesting environment to kind of exist in and 
have animals and plants and everything thrive together. So I wondered for our listeners who are maybe more interested in the kind of wider ecosystem or the animal interactions or whatever it is, what kind of stuff do you see and experience in the garden? What kind of beyond this kind of the trees that are planted there by you, what kind of biodiversity do you see thriving in in the area? Yeah. Yeah, I've got I've got a couple. I mean, probably not so much in terms of really technical like mutualism or symbiosis or anything, but yeah, one of the ama- there's a couple of amazing things about our garden is like you said where we're where we're positioned. Um, you know, we've got a, an incredible array of bird life. Like when I was younger, I used to laugh at bird people and twitches, and now I'm totally a bird person. Um, but you know, we during the during the pandemic after the fires you know, the garden was closed on and off for several times um, over the last couple of years. And because so much of the habitat out in the in the wilderness was destroyed and incredibly damaged by the fires, our garden became a real oasis for the bird life. And, and we've always had incredible diverse bird life, but we have the eastern lyrebird, eastern superb lyrebird, um, which I'm not sure for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's, it's this incredible bird. It's kind of a scaled down, less colourful peacock yet it's heaps better than a peacock. It's, um, it's, it's one of the world's, one of the most incredible mimics in the bird kingdom. Um, or, and there's, if you YouTube it and look it up, there's, there's um, videos of them mimicking chainsaws, mimicking dogs, mimicking sirens, all these things. And uh, in the last sort of year, especially during the lockdown, and I was privileged enough to sort of have the garden to myself a lot of days during the lockdown, during the pandemic, about at least six lyrebirds have come all the way up in the garden um right up into the right near our visitor center they're they're incredibly used to people now and last year i think um some scientists published a paper that suggested that i think they said the lyrebird out of all animals alters its its environment more than any other animal purely based on volume of material that it affects and more than beavers more than everything it, it moves an average male lyrebird i think moves tons of leaf litter a year and they scratch through the soil they they've got this beautiful big arching tail feather like sort of plumage in their tails and they put that up to attract a female and then they start dancing and going through their entire mimicry and and they're also doing this incredible thing for the the olayer in in under our tree collection. They're they're turning over all of this wonderful mulch for looking for grubs and insects. And we're we're when I guess it's not necessarily scientific yet, but more and more we're thinking about how we manage our woodlands and our tree collections in this ecological way. That it that the trees aren't just in isolation, the plants aren't in isolation. These these animals are doing things for them, even if the plants aren't native even if these are the exotics in our collection and the same goes for plants as a food source so we we're lucky enough to have um the gang gang cockatoo which is a a endangered australian native cockatoo that is endemic to the the east coast of australia and around where and the ranges around where the blue mountains botanic garden is and because we have we have walnuts, we have all sorts of conifers. The parrots just love them. So we get these wonderful gang gang, gang cockatoos, and um, they're this quirky little bird, grey foliage with sort of um, grey grey plumage, not foliage. They're a bird, um, and this funny little little tuft of of a, of a comb on top of their head. 
and people call mm. them the creaky door. So their their call sounds like a creaky door. They kind of do this funny like and at certain times of year when the conifers are all coning and when the walnuts are out, um, they just come in and, and our staff will be lucky enough to, to be working near, you know, five or six of them just in the trees making a mess, um, filling filling their bellies full of high starch and protein. And it's it's wonderful when you think a lot of these things, their habitat is is under threat or, or they, they're, they're vulnerable or threatened with extinction because of all these human um, threats really yet our gardens the plants we plant can become a really vital food source for them and and we've really seen that in the last few years and it's i think we're probably far more aware of it because of what happened in the fires and, and seeing all of that habitat loss um but yeah it's wonderful when you sort of every year in australia that there's a, a an organization called bird life oz and they do a bird of the year vote and the, I always vote for the gang gang. Um, and, you know, we're, we're lucky enough to see them, like, you know, fairly regularly in our garden. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting to hear because, yeah, it's like whenever I think of botanic gardens that are placed in cities, like you think of them as like this hub of like biodiversity because they may have been just animals and plants and whatever it is it may have been displaced from normal environments because obviously there's more building and building and building and building and spreading outwards and upwards and all this stuff that displaces these animals so you think of it in that way but it's it's, so it's amazing to hear that even yes where you would i know you would expect it more but it's it's interesting to hear about the animals that yeah in a more natural setting still thrive within a garden space and come into a garden space it's really 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 interesting and yeah I think the lyrebird is such a good example. It's such a charismatically bizarre yeah. animal, and yeah, anyone who hasn't heard the heard the the mimicking of the lyrebird, it, it like that was what rang because I recognised the name when you said it, and it was only when you said mimicking I was like, yes, because it is it's it's amazing, slightly creepy, <laughs> but uh, amazing, and I, yeah. I I think yeah, everyone go and look up a clip of a a lyrebird doing its song because it's fantastic and amazing, and yeah, just great and. I think it's a good one to highlight as well, because I think when a lot of people think of ecosystem engineers, they think, yeah, of, of big mammals. They think of things like elephants that turn over so much landscape and kind of break down trees and do leave all these footprints, which turn into mud, which turn into kind of little microhabitats. They think of all this sort of stuff, but they don't necessarily think about the birds. So it's amazing to find this great example of an ecosystem engineer that is perhaps a bit yeah, a bit smaller, a bit stranger, a bit more underappreciated. Uh, I think plants in general, they're a bit like the, the trees. They are just uh, underappreciated for what they are. They're beautiful. They're fantastic. They're amazing. They have so much amazing life in them. Um, and they have so many interesting traits and things. And yeah, I think we, we need to fall in love with our birds a bit more. So I'm very, very glad you, you, you uh, yeah, you, you used that example. It's fantastic. Really, really interesting. Really, really interesting. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, you know, the lyrebirds, they actually... Um... They live in the same habitat as where the Wallamai pine um, exists. And when when we did some work in in one of the establishing one of the translocation sites, I'd never seen it before. But we were we were working up around some rocky um, sort of overhangs, and there was this big sort of nest up, essentially in a little sandstone cave. And and I asked one of the ecologists that was with us, I was like, "What's that?" And they're like, "Oh, that's a lyrebird nest." And you know, this thing that's down on the forest floor raking away, I'd never even thought about where it, where it nests. And, that, you know, the fact that they're up in these canyons and clearly the plants down there, including the wall of my pine, have evolved with these birds. Um, 
you know, birds are just dinosaurs, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're pretty much the same thing. Right? Yeah, the same thing, right? And it's, 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 it's one of those things you look at them and you think, you're not you're not particularly scary. Look at you. You're just like a little whatever feather thing. And you think, oh, but great, 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 great grandfather of you was a big scary. But maybe not as quite as scary as the perhaps falsely designed velociraptors and things that we see on TV. But still, we got to give you some respect for some your your history, your ancestry there, Mr. Birds, Mr. and Mrs. Birds. Because, yeah, you come from a scary, scary lineage. And I guess, I, I mean, I, I'm about to ask a real downer of a question, but I think it's really an, an important <laughs> one. Because um, that's so that was all interesting. We've fallen in love. We've gotten people to love these trees and these birds and nature and all sorts of stuff. But I have to ask, because we are a conservation podcast, we've we've talked a little bit about the threats to some of the, the species that we've we've been discussing. But could you tell us maybe a little bit more about them? We've, we've hyped people up. We need to now bring them back down to earth. <laughs> <laughs> what is the kind of yeah what are the kind of threats is it that you mentioned pathogens and fires are those the main threats to the species what what would you consider to be the big threats to the the species that we've discussed today yeah look i mean sadly um really the biggest threat is people um we as as i think there was a time when even as as an organization we're a bit tentative to talk about this um in a negative way but you know, we, we're facing an extinction crisis. We all, I think everyone in the conservation field is very aware of that now. I think it's in some ways it is a positive thing that, that the general public and, and the layman are, are really aware of it. You know, we're watching the climate change before our very eyes um, and the things that are coming with that, increased wildfire, um, increased drought, uh, those things are just the, they're the nails. If, we, if, we, if we're not going to do something about it, they're the nails in the coffin that, are coming in on top of all of this stuff to do with fragmentation of habitat, habitat destruction, land clearing, um, all these other human-caused problems that that are pretty consistently, you know, you, you look at any threatened species, be it animal or plant, and you look at the scientific assessments of them, you look at the, the threats, you know, generally most of those processes where our amazing scientists around the world you know, work so hard to identify the threats. And the commonality is that it's, it's, it's habitat destruction, it's um, changing climate. And then you throw on the pathogens to me, you know, more and more in horticulture and arboriculture, we think of, you know, path- a lot of pathogens are out there. They're in the environment. Things like Phytophthora cinnamomai that threatens the my pine, there's, it's, it's almost ubiquitous in the landscape these days, whether it's, it was there um, pre-colonial times or not could be debated by some people but the thing is when the plants are culturally grown well when they when their habitat is strong when the ecosystem is strong the plants have a better chance to survive the animals have a better chance um, more resistance just like our immune systems as humans and once we with the threats faced by a changing climate um and and all these other things that once a pathogen gets into those environments then the plants sometimes don't stand a chance and that's the that's the real tough bit to accept. I think it's it's scary. Um, some people get quite depressed about it. We all have our dark days when we were worried about it. But then you look at the, a lot of the solutions, uh, the things our scientists are working so hard on around the world, and the answers are there. The solutions are there. Um, you know, someone asked me in an interview after the fires about what I thought about all of this, and and I, it's it sounds a bit big and a bit airy fairy but I, I can't help but always thinking that you know 
some people would deny this and say it's a conspiracy, but America put a man on the moon in a decade when a president said, we're going to do this. And they threw science, all their money and science and technology at it. And we all kind of know that the world's facing these this, this problem, climate change, uh, species, you know, extinction crisis. And yet we've got all the tools, everything we can do, the money, we could, we could change it and we could, we could address a lot of it and we could turn a lot of it around. And, and the wonderful conservation stories, saving the Wallamai Pine, that's just one of so many that, that are going on around the world by incredible people in places like botanic gardens and zoos. And, and we can do more. And, and that's kind of like, that's the positive spin on all of that. The threats are there, but also the answers and solutions to those threats are also there. So. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that was the that was the perfect answer because you spun it there at the end and made it hopeful and positive, and I think that's the the really important thing because the fight is never lost as long as we keep going and trying to protect what we love and what we believe in, and it, there's no yeah the battle's never lost. We can keep doing things, and I think yeah that was a really good spin. The perfect way to answer the question is to kind of yeah make it a positive one because yeah, yeah, and I don't especially now. I don't know if it was the same for you in Australia, but obviously with us here with covid and everything people were forced outdoors again and they kind of couldn't go inside for restaurants they couldn't go inside for family gatherings they couldn't go inside to do all the things they normally do we were all outside all of the time and we started to fall back in love with nature again and we started to fall in love with the, the plants the trees the the weird mushroom things that grow the kind of birds that sing in the trees we fell in love with everything that was part of nature again and i i hope that that will continue here i i i don't know if it, and kind of yeah and kind of inspire people to keep wanting to protect this thing that they fell back in love with and i wonder um was it the same for you there did you kind of have this everyone being forced back outside so we're to kind of falling back in love with nature was that a thing for you as well because yeah i'd be really interested to know like what your experience was with that as well yeah yeah definitely it's it's wonderful to see people just gardening and and you know i i've I'm, i'll put my hand up i've been guilty of being that sort of ah. Uh, horticulture snob where i'm like oh you know you can't plant that you know but but more and more these days i'm like if someone's going to bunnings or like b and q over there um and buying some pansies or buying some you know common as muck grass and just having a go at gardening or if they're they're yeah going to their botanic gardens and trying to buy buy a wall of my pine or whatever it is and just having a go we've seen a huge increase in that um you know the the indoor plant trend at the moment of people trying to you know, sp- spend ridiculous amounts on a on a variegated monstera. Um, it's funny. It's easy to laugh at that, but then it's also wonderful when you think those. That's the, like I've said, used the phrase before, but the gateway drug. You know, people get into that, and then you never know. They'll 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 go. Oh, I really enjoy growing plants. And then, like I said, I wasn't a bird person years ago. Now I'm a bird person. Well, like it, it all starts. The more you engage, the more you look in into the natural world. Um, beyond just David Attenborough movies and stuff and you actually start engaging with it in the in the flesh like real time um, that's the that's the way through Mm -hmm. yep yep I can speak from personal experience because like even though like when I mean when I was younger like we um we grew tomatoes and stuff in our garden there was always plants around us and whatever it was but like ever since I started working at the botanics there has been an exponential increase in the number of plants in my life and i think once you buy one it then you start like it's like the gateway and then you kind of yeah like it's it is it's this kind of like yeah you kind of buy one and then you're like 
oh, like I'll, like I, I went into um, a local garden centre here and like bought a, an aloe vera that was looking a bit sad around Christmas time. And then ever since then, so there was an aloe vera that I've nursed back to health. It's huge. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And then I was, I've gotten a cactus and then another cactus and then another cactus. And then I was like, oh, I'll grow wildflowers and vegetables and potatoes and this, that. And like, soon enough, sooner or later, you kind of, you start looking around and you go, I've suddenly become a plant person and I now have a hundred plants all around me. And it, it's the, everything from moss balls to aloe vera to massive um, palms and all sorts. Like you just all of a sudden, like all of these things start exploding into your life. And it's it just makes your life better. The more plants you have, the better your life will be. Um, and yeah, you, I can see. Yeah. Yeah. Get plants. Learn about plants. Get one or two but be prepared that those one or two will be a gateway into <laughs> hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more. Um, and yeah, really, really, uh, yeah. And, uh, but the best decision and the best things you can ever commit to and overcommit to, I would say, um, is the the purchase and the care of plants. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, I guess now we've kind of, um, we've talked about it throughout and I guess a good piece of advice is already kind of like committing to, to getting plants, but I, I wondered, um, at this point, I always like to ask, if you have any advice for people who want to, to support maybe the conservation of plants or the protection of plants or fall in love with kind of any of maybe specific species like the Wallamai or the dwarf mountain pine or whatever it is, do you have advice for people who, during the course of our conversation, have fallen in love with these stories and, and want to, to do more? Um, what would your advice be? Yeah, look, um. I guess it's a, there's probably a couple of barrels to that. Like, you know, for me, the most important thing is, is just encouraging people to engage, like just engage with it in whatever way you can. We sort of just touched on that. Um, but a lot of people, I think are worried. They, 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 it seems un, unreachable because you, they're worried about killing plants if they grow them or they, they're worried about not having time to learn or understand things that might be a bit abstract to them. But yet, there are so many ways to engage, whether that is your own little plant collection at home, but volunteering at a local land care group. There are wonderful, you know, grassroots movements, pardon the pun, of like restoring, um, you know, lo like local ecologies around the place. Like Australia has land care. There's, there's movements everywhere where you can go down somewhere, you can get in touch. Social media, it's the wonderful side of social media, right? You can find these things. You can go out, you can learn off an expert. There'll be people there that have so much knowledge to give. Um, they'll, they'll share things. They'll share plants. They'll give you anything. And you, you can pull some weeds out. You can restore and ha some habitat for some of these. And, and it might be that you prefer animals, but without the plants, the animals don't have anything to eat, you know. And um, you can really make a difference by doing that. And, uh, yeah, I just think there's so many ways to do it, and I, I don't think there's a wrong way. Um, I think engaging outside of outside of the artificial world of social media or that, you know, or, you know, sort of performative activism. It, that's, that's great too, but it's better just to get your hands in the dirt, get out there in the trees and, and look and engage. And the more you learn, the more there is to learn and the more wonderful and interesting the world becomes and you, and you're making a difference. So that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. And that's exactly it. Cause it's like, Ever since I planted all these wildflowers and grown all these things, like I've seen so much more biodiversity of every kind, like so many more birds in the garden, so many bugs and bees and insects and little creepy crawlies of all different shapes and sizes and colours and everything. Like, And so, yeah, you kind of, without even meaning it, you're kind of 
helping promote a more biodiverse little space of of land around your house and so yeah i think a fantastic fantastic piece of advice because yeah because yeah even if you're a, a, a an animal person say like doing this encourages more biodiversity it like just yeah great advice great great advice and I, what it has kind of got me thinking about is when you were talking i was thinking about the fact that like before i started working at the botanic garden that i work at now I didn't realize just how many ways there were to be involved with plants and there's a, a way to be involved in with plants for everyone so like we uh, at Edinburgh I don't know you probably similar things um for you guys but we run education courses not just in kind of conservation and that sort of stuff but also in botanical art and herbology um and all sorts of different age groups and online and in person lots of different diverse ways of learning and yet there's just so many ways to engage and learn and grow to love plants that yeah, I I think it's it's fantastic. There there's such a, a there's something out there that is in the plant genre for anyone or everyone, and it's yeah, just so fantastic. Yeah, all you really need to do is just get started, I suppose. Yeah, just get started and get out there. It's it's great. It's really really great. Um, and don't <laughs> and don't forget to hug a tree. Hugging trees is awesome. <laughs> hug it. Put your ear to it. You know, I I used to be a bit sciencey and sort of didn't want to personify plants and give them that sort of oh no you can't do that but but you know it's the stories it's the humanity it's the thing that connects us all and it and you know whether it's that books like the hidden life of trees and things where that's amazing how much reach that's had and got people thinking about ecology and you know sure you can say the trees are talking maybe they are maybe they aren't but but the thing is that people are, are suddenly thinking about something bigger than just one tree in a forest they're thinking about the whole forest and how it's working it's great no i'm i'm exactly the same because it's so hard not to have favorites because there is so much out there and it's so easy to fall in love with these kind of like fantastic beautiful amazing wonderful things and you start to personify them and you start to fall in love more with them and kind of yeah it's, it's really hard not to especially with kind of I don't know I've been thinking a lot with teaching a summer school about these kind of folklore myths and legends and stuff that goes on around um plants and especially here in Europe we've got things like the Greek myths are very accessible to us through school and all sorts of things I don't know if um they're similarly taught to you guys as well but here in like they are all kind of around and about in our consciousness and things like the stories of Narcissus and how he became a plant, how he became the daffodil and things like the story of Hades and Persephone and how the seasons came to be and like all of these things that have to do with plants. They just, yeah, they make you fall in love. And so, yeah, I can see it's very, very hard not to have favorites. <laughs> so, yeah, I I, <laughs> I fully agree. Um, but I think we are going down another tangent and we have already spoken for like, an hour so I think <laughs> we need to start wrapping up because otherwise I mean I could talk to you all day about this and I think it, it would be great to the because I've, I've finally woken up for for listeners for context we started recording this first thing in the morning because it uh, the time difference between Australia and Scotland is quite significant so my uh, we recorded this and when we started I was slightly zoned out of reality I think I I, I think I recovered well but um, now I've, I'm tuned properly in and I'm ready to keep going let's <laughs> let's go for another hour actually yeah scrap it uh, i hope cancel every plan you've got in your diary for tonight um i'll cancel my day plans we'll go for <laughs> another hour <laughs> no uh, <laughs> in all seriousness there's one more question that i like to ask which is just very simple one if people want to keep up to date with anything you're doing or like want to learn more about any of the topics that we've discussed today or any of the gardens work or anything that we've chatted about what do you think what should they go and look at what should they go and learn about 
what yeah what would what would you recommend that they go and 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 do yeah yeah look um if you google the blue mountains botanic gardens uh sydney or australia the royal botanic garden sydney um that'll take you to links um to our web pages um their their sites are kind of interlinked um there's some blogs there's there's probably a, a weird embarrassing profile about me um there's there's some great stuff there and then there's you know if you google wallamai pine uh bushfires you'll find some wonderful news articles about the stories that i spoke about there and the, the amazing efforts by all sorts of people to to save those trees and and then yeah for those voracious readers um i think i mentioned it the wallamai pine by james woodford it's just a wonderful book you know it's it's actually you know really does make plant conservation sound incredible um that's yeah fantastic 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 and i'll put links to all of that in the description for this episode so any listeners who want to like learn about anything that you've mentioned or whatever it is throughout the episode i'll chuck loads of links down there i'll try and post some like photos or i'll i'll put links to articles or whatever it is about the um some of the plants that we've discussed um down there as well because i think sometimes don't know if it's just me i i sometimes have a hard time picturing plants when people try and describe them to me i like to have a visual um so i'll put links to all that sort of stuff down there and yeah so hopefully um hopefully we can uh yeah, we can um, inspire some some more love of plants through the bazaar uh, using those links down there as well. And I'm sure it'll be easy to fall in love with them because, yeah, they're just so fantastic. We'll, we'll, we'll win them over eventually, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Because <laughs> my problem is always when I, I pick popular plants, I already, or no, when I pick plants to back i already pick ones that are popular like i'll always pick things like oh i love the jade vine and then people be like oh yeah everyone has a jade vine we all know that so now i have one that's like a one a plant i can back that is bizarre and interesting and different to everything else and i'm I'm excited by that (laughs) just fantastic it's amazing um so yes the justice for the the dwarf mountain pine uh (laughs) and i'm teaching a summer school actually this summer so i think yeah i'll try and push the wall of my story and everything as much as I possibly can um, to to the kids and see hopefully hopefully some of them will fall in love with it as well um, just as this kind of propaganda for them uh, <laughs> now I, I I guess now is the time to to wrap up and I, it's it's a shame because I feel like yeah there's so much more we can discuss maybe we can um, we can have another episode very very soon um, but to wrap up all I've got to say is of course. Uh, uh, thank you to the listeners for uh, listening. Uh, I'll, as I said, I've popped all the links down there if you're interested in anything we've been talking about. Also, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Please give us a follow so you don't miss out on any future episodes. You can also leave a nice review for us there as well. So if you want to add anything nice, you can write something. You can just give us a star rating. If there's anything you want to do, you can do that. Um, we would very much appreciate it. Um you can also check us out on social media. We are at Pangolin Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and uh, Facebook, as well as TikTok and LinkedIn and all over the place. Just look up Pangolin the Conservation Podcast or at Pangolin Podcast. You'll find us on there um, as well. And of course, last but not least, thank you so, so much, Ian, for, for joining me today. It's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you. It's just been great, great, great. Your stories have been fantastic. You've made me laugh. You've made me cry with the wall of my story. It's just been a great time. So thank you so, 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 so much. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks heaps for having me. And yeah, when um, now the world is opening back up, you'll, you'll have to get down to Australia and 
make sure you uh, drop us a line and we'll we'll take you out and show you a whole bunch of cool stuff that's fantastic that's yeah that's thank you so much because yes i've these podcast episodes are really setting up a good trip for me because i've already spoken to deborah tabart from the australian koala foundation and like i'm gonna cut like so i will be in australia eventually to bother her and when i'm down i will include you in my tour of australia as well because it would be absolutely fantastic to yeah speak to you and see the garden for myself because it's looking at it online and through pictures and everything it looks absolutely fantastic so i will turn up i will one day <laughs> whether you uh, meant that or not i will turn up <laughs> now um I, but again before we go off on another tangent thank you so much for your time it's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you thank you listeners thank you everybody thank you thank you thank you and until next time everybody goodbye <laughs> 